So the whole birth, I guess, of the clinic started with an idea of what we needed in the community and not necessarily who we needed to give the services to or who needed to give the services, but what we needed to do. And I was a solo practitioner for 20 some years. And then I thought, okay, let's expand this thing. I'm kind of being led to expand it. Um, I, I sit in meditation quite often and part of one of my meditations one day was it's time to grow and I've been resisting it for a very long time because I kind of like just being by myself and doing my thing and when I heard it was time to grow and I said okay who and probably three years ago I reconnected with Ken he and I had a relationship 20-some years ago. He was supervisor for me when I was in private practice or so, maybe 15 years ago. And we reconnected, and I had met Ramel Smith, and we hung out one evening, and I said, you know, something can grow from this. Let's stay connected. And we did, and over the couple years, I kind of just kept touching base, and we kept saying, hey, how you doing, that kind of thing. And I'm a professor over at Alverno as well. And Pardeep was one of my students. And another student of mine made me go, ah, I, I, she is really good. And in meditation, I'm going, okay, who, who, who? And these four people came to me in meditation. And I said, okay, so what do y'all think? You think we can do this? And they were all like, hell yeah, let's, let's do this thing. As part of that, we want to build a foundation and how we need to represent ourselves in the community. And building a foundation is the most important thing so that we can attract the type of business and clientele that serves our expertise. Growing up in the city, um, you always saw a level of divisiveness. You know, as a kid, you didn't, you, I guess you didn't uh, think about it as much as you do now as an adult because it didn't make as much sense to you. But then you learn the history of it and where it came from and, and how to unravel it became the challenge. And so, I, I, you know, we, we, I had been doing this um, addressing the trauma, I think even as a police officer when I was a cop. Um, when I went to a call, I think my mindset was just a little bit different than other police officers. And that, I think that's what led to the frustration after a while, is that I'm seeing, and, and, and not, not that I'm judging as much, but when you're dealing with trauma, you're understanding. And, and I, I approached it from that sense. And then when I, the more that you understand it, you understand that there is a lot of um, history at play. There's a lot of oppressive history uh, at play and structures at play. And, and how do we unravel all that? Um, after you know, after my experience of being a teacher, uh, especially working with like at-risk students, you got to see some of those things in their in their personal lives. Um, and then as they came to school, you you kind of saw how it, it manifests itself in in that structure. Um, after August fifth, we come back to you know understanding the role of societal trauma, generational trauma, of racism. Um, but but trauma comes back, and we're thinking, you know, for, 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 for us, I believe it's like connecting. How do we form those connections? Because trauma is what's getting in the way, and it's what's causing us to be and sort I, of disconnected. I, and identifying. And identifying, trauma. yeah. Because many of us walk with <coughs> trauma. 
mm -hmm. and you can actually see it and, and feel it in a person. And for the person in that space, they don't necessarily know that that's what's going on. And, and the traumas can be varied. It, it's my trauma is different than another person's trauma. It's how it affected me and how it helps me or hurts me as I navigate through life. And those are the things we feel mm -hmm. is the most healing part that we can do with that trauma. And it's also trauma stored on a cellular level. So we, it has to be expressed, not just verbally, but in any other medium that a person feels um, can help them process that work. So that can be through any form of anything physical or anything musical or anything through arts. And it's part of our path to help them to figure out what that genre would be for them. Mm -hmm. And then to go back and I, you don't necessarily have to go back to that first trauma. You don't have to say, oh, I got a pinpoint where that began. But to pinpoint the feeling of that is important mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that repeats itself over and over again. Yeah. And I think we've all been traumatized in some yeah. kind of way. It's how we work with that trauma. And I think we have to advance what, what I think people think of when it comes to trauma because right now the media focuses on school shootings. They focus on street violence. They focus on... Uh, DV and all these other things and I've been doing this for years I've never worked with someone that hasn't had trauma I can look around my family and everyone's had a, they've experienced some form of trauma whether it's you know old-school trauma that we think of or if it's just a minutia of daily things we see on TV that traumatizes us and if we can expand our understanding of what that means we think we can open the doors and let people know that what you've been through what you deal with day in day out is some form of trauma and it's jamming you up. I think that they're fearful that just confirms that they're that they are oppressed, that they're in trauma because they've held on to these beliefs for generations. And finally because there's more room at the table, they don't want to scoot over. And they're holding on, they're fighting tooth and nail to not make room for somebody else. That's trauma. That's time that's taken away from hope. We'd like to have people begin to look at those that are demonized as being impoverished and downtrodden. In many respects, they're resilient. In many respects, they're mentally affluent as opposed to financially affluent. There's lessons that can be learned from those who are, well, you know, those people of means. They can learn from people who have been without. And it flips the script a little bit. You know, it makes it so that we're not beholden to them, but we're beholden to each other when there's folks who have never had adversity and they've never faced adversity how do they deal with that so things finally have to change for them and uh, from from what i've heard with the the, the suburban person and um, having those conversations it's it doesn't affect me right so when it doesn't affect me i don't have to pay attention to it and what we're talking about now is they're beginning to become affected by whatever it is. And now they have to change their way of living. And we look at change, and it's so difficult for people to change no matter where they're at. And there's actually methods of change. And if you approach a person who's going through some type of situation that they've never experienced before and begin to help them go through the stages of change to open how they think 
that can change some things for them. And their thinking becomes more expanded and they begin to think differently. And instead of react to the situation, actually sit back and have some type of thoughtful and mindful response to what they're going through. And be able to be okay with that process. And they don't have to, however they respond is fine. It's, there is no set way to do that. And I think when people get in the habit, they think that there's a formula on how they should respond. And this is a way for us to help them. No, that, that's not true. There is no formula. How you respond is okay. Is it okay for you to respond that way and not affect other areas of your life? That's the important thing to look at. The other part of it is I think we all sort of suffer from a neurosis of just just life, right? And we go through our way of having expectations and how life should be until something disrupts it. Right. And, you know, I come, I think I, I come from the Viktor Frankl school of thought. And a lot of times when, when I'm in session, I'm trying to make meaning of it. Um, there's somebody that's going through something and is holding on to it for a long period of time. And how that body holds that trauma. And now it's, just, it's revealing itself. Um, but coming back and saying, what was the meaning of that? And as far as like, you know, when we're thinking about it, we're thinking about it holistically. How can we, how can we, you know, attend to the mind, body, spirit? And the spirit being, what, what, was, what was the reason for this? How can you cope with it? How can you deal with it? And then being able to move forward from there. There's something behind the trauma and trying to have them address, address even what, like, what's behind it. Social media, what's causing them to be <coughs> anxious at, at this headline. You know, uh, and a lot of times what's, what's behind it uh, is not, not just the visceral anger that they're having, but it's the sadness of, it's, the, it's the, the belief that it shouldn't be this way. The politics of having this inconvenient truth that we're not in a post-racial America. This image, this father figure of our country is not what we thought it was. And how do we make that shift overnight? Things will never be the same. And that's tough for a lot of people, you know. So we have been entitled for a very long time. And it's only when we experience some trauma. And I'm not going to say trauma is a great thing, but it can be a gift. Because we speak often of silos. We go into our silos. And therapy is a time for an individual to leave their silo. And it's only when you leave that silo, when they come in and talk to one of us, and trust us and step out into the field, that change can happen. And they might go back into their silo later on, but they're going back better and more willing to leave that silo again. And I think people on the left, the right, the upper class, the lower class, have all been forced to leave their silo, or at least see what's outside of their silo. So the trauma of looking on Facebook, it's important that we realize I'm looking at, of the probably two billion people that are on Facebook, I'm reading one feed from one person who elected to say something. That's not fact. That's that, um, that, that's that person's opinion. That's that person's tweet. So let me think of what else is out there. Let me think critically, what do I think about that? And not have that pull me down. Or let me counter that. And like, and like uh, President Obama said yesterday, which I think we all do here, is we don't do therapy online. We don't tweet recovery. We don't tr um, tweet healing. We basically meet people face to face, we shake their hand, and we talk to them. That's the only way you can counter this. The only way. It's not going to be based on what's trending or what's viral.
Well, that fear's not a bad thing. Fear's great. You know, if you smell smoke, you sit up and find out where the fire's at. Uh, better that than where things have been for the past 20, 30 years for lots of people. Um, my thought is you run to the fire. You address it. You don't deny it. You seek out help. You find out people that know how to put out fires, so to speak. And again, that's what I think we do quite well, and other professionals do. Um, once people are aware of something, they have to deal with it. They can't deny it. And again, our nation is at a point where we can no longer deny what's going on. If you're able to say, that doesn't affect me, let's say that there's some issue going on or someone is brutalized on the street, and, you, and then you say, that doesn't affect me, then you've revealed yourself at some, as someone that's in pain. The fact that you cannot respond to someone's misery? Are we at that point yet? I hope not. And even though that may be modeled by others, that's not who we are as people. And again, <laughs> this is a great chance for us to really step up and engage with one another again. You know, someone saying, why would you destroy your own neighborhood? Those people might be able to say, why have you ignored our neighborhood? Why have you ignored me? Do you not know what's going on? Let's sit down and talk about this. Um, I've I've struggled with that because I didn't go down and, you know, trash stuff, nor did I go down there and clean up the next day. But I'm affected by that. I think we all are to some extent, whether it's through taxes or lack thereof taxes, we're affected by that. We see that. Um, I think that that was an opportunity because my gut reaction to the unrest was not justifying it, but I was surprised it took that long. We live in a city that's segregated beyond belief, and I've worked in Mequon, I've worked on the north side. And I've said to people in Mequon, I've said, I've, you know, the issues you have here are far more traumatic than on the north side because you're not ready to, you know, really to deal with it. The problems they're facing are very different, but their ability to cope was not near as resilient. Okay. So what lessons could be learned? So when these things happen, and they will happen again, rather than kind of trust a pundit who's paid to be in front of a camera, connect. Find a middle ground and talk to each other. Engage. Without that, this is just going to you know, really continue like it's a reality show, which it's not. This is people's lives. And there was this uh, um, sense of entitlement of, this can't happen to us. And my response was, but it has and it will again, whether it's this issue or something else. So trying to shore them up to deal with these things. So, again, I am not questioning people's ability to cope, but I do think that... Um, we learn, er, we, we learn at a very young age how to cope. We, we, we witness our elders coping successfully, or we look at our history. And again, I think that's where we can learn from each other. A lot of times we have this sort of, we're not communicating because we're not really communicating. We're talking at each other. We're not talking with each other. We're listening to respond rather than we're listening to understand. And I think this 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 problem becomes even worse because because we sit behind screens and now we don't have those genuine conversations. So what's said is said out of context or whatever context that other person behind that other screen is in. And so when we come back to coping mechanisms, it's you you post this thing that you think is very clever, right? And you say this because that's the narrative you're thinking about. That's what your friends are thinking about. Your silos thinking about. You post it and you put it out into the world. Now, you put it onto the world as sort of this infant child of yours, not ever wanting it to be, <laughs> like, challenged, right? Don't challenge my post. But then when it is challenged, you know, you're, you're 
busy defending it rather than trying to understand mm-hmm. the other person on the other line because you don't for one you don't know how they said it for a second it's just it's just too personal to you so i i think part of that is like coming back and saying okay well you know what we need to understand that there's a trauma of social media of being on it and it's creating these saddles and it's making them worse rather than making it better when it should have when and all intentionally it should have made things better because now you can communicate with somebody further away or another country or speaks a different language and you have all those skills available but we're 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 missing something and that thing that we're missing is that genuine empathetic response is that feeling so we get to a culture of apathy and nobody cares about the next person and that becomes our defense mechanism and like a lot of the kids that are coming up these days you know you see it from infant you see it at teenagers, you see it, you, they have an addiction sort of to the device. And they can't, they, you know, the first thing on their mind is like, where is it? Okay, let me get to it, let me do something with it, let me, and, and it becomes, that that becomes their coping, Man, that's their safety, that's their blanket, sort of say. And uh, they don't know anything different. I am aware that I'm African American when I walk into any place where there aren't any other African Americans. It's just it's just a, a check thing. I walk in, I see that, and I go, oh, okay. Unconsciously, how am I going to be received? What do I need to do? Blah, blah, blah. But outwardly, I, I'm just me, right? And it has taken not a long time to get that. I mean, I remember being that way as a young person because I come from... A family that was very comfortable with who they were as a as a race very very you know supportive family validating family all of that stuff so it wasn't hard for me to do that but I'm not the person that code switches when I'm with different groups and I make a point not to do that because for me that would be incoherent with who I am internally and who I express externally but I do recognize, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm the only one here. So what does that mean? And then if I get some kind of funky comment from people, I absolutely respond to that now very honestly. I think just like, just like Tracy said, mine fluctuates a little bit. And when I was a child, I thought about it a lot more when I was going through certain stages of uh, development when I was a teenager. When I remember going to college and going off to college and being at a college that was predominantly all white. And thinking to myself, coming from Milwaukee Public Schools, which is predominantly all people of color, and just just that culture shock of, holy cow! And literally, I th- I was so paranoid. I thought people were looking at me, and I would ask my roommates at the time who were uh, Caucasian, and I would say, Hey, do you think people are looking at you? And they would say, No, no, it's all in it's all in your mind. It's mm-hmm. all and and part of it was they were kind of right. Part of it was a lot of it was in my mind, but. It was an experience that I had taken with me and then started to get over that and obviously just kind of fluctuated when I became a police officer. Okay, how do I feel as an Indian cop working in this community as a teacher? And then, you know, you do think about it. It is, it's real. Yeah, I think there's several worlds though. One is doing the practice we do and there it's not it's not so apparent that there's any difference because I think about half of our clients are people of color, if not more than that. So if we're seeing 20 clients a week or 25 a week, then, you know, for them and also for us, it's something that might be different because Wisconsin, 
is segregated. Let's just say that. Um, professionally, much like Tracy said, you go to a conference, a presentation, there's a handful of people of color, you know. And that's how it's been, I think, since college and grad school. Not because uh, I think we're the best and the brightest, but because of opportunity for many of us. So I consider myself fortunate. Um, but also, too, um, it kind of, there, there's, there's times where, you're, where you kind of think, well, you know, do I need to code switch? Do I need to adjust? And I think in some respects what, what I've had to do at least is recognize that what I see as the reality of a predominantly white society in Wisconsin, like if, if, if this is what is for me today, that's not necessarily the reality outside of Wisconsin. So having lived in Chicago, Hawaii, Chicago, you realize that actually the world is much more diverse. The world is different than what I see. And I'm not going to say it's better, I'm just going to say it's different. And I found it personally to be better. And not just for me. I found it to be better for people who are not like me. Because they have a chance again to go, just to go back to the silos to interact with other people, learn other experiences. And it also is really um, kind of where things are headed, very much so. I'll never forget when I moved here years ago, um, I was working on a book and I walked past someone, this is back in like the late, late 90s, and I smelled a jerry curl, which was a <laughs> hairstyle back in the day. And I hadn't smelled that for like 15 years, it was so old school. And I joked at the time that Milwaukee's like, and Wisconsin was 15 years behind because people still got jerry curls. And if you look at the diversity of a state like Wisconsin, it's a little bit behind the times. I'm not saying that's good or bad, it's just behind the times. And I, and I think people are holding on to something, but they have to loosen the grip because a predominantly black, white world has changed. And as a professional, I've had a chance to witness that in grad school. My dissertation was benefited. I consulted with a Muslim gentleman from, I think it was Pakistan. Um, I knew people who had immigrated from Mexico. So early on, it's like, oh, so the, the world is much more diverse. And I've let that carry me through my whole career. And now I see people that I work with are wanting some of that as well. I, I don't think there's a problem with this city at all. Um, as I said earlier, I think you know, we're poised, dare, I mean, dare I say, for greatness because of how things are right now. It's an opportunity that ideally will be seized. Um, we have all the talent we could ever need to make these changes. Um, we have all the resources we could ever need to make these changes. It just has to be the willingness to step up and really embrace that. Uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee County, Wisconsin has seen some positive things happen. We've seen some horrific tragedies happen. And at what point do we step up and we respond to that? Do we wait for something to happen, or do we say, let's gradually chip away at, at this through you know, dialogue and outreach? And it just has to happen. And not that this is the reason Milwaukee is Milwaukee or there's a problem, but segregation is pretty much a huge issue here. And it's nice to stay in your little pocket and not have to deal with other people. And then how do we get people on opposite sides to communicate when they're and not when there's a tragedy, when there mm -hmm. isn't a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all talked
talked about this a little bit is through communication and being around one another and how do you facilitate that that seems to be a really tough thing for us to do as a city especially when it, there's socioeconomic difference as opposed to the racial difference and I think that can be as big as an, an issue as racially and nobody wants to go to this area and you're not welcome in this area and it I think the segregation is a big issue and if we can get people to come together not for a cause but just to get to know each mm -hmm. other to be able to sit around and chat I think would really diffuse some of that fear because when you begin to see another person as human and not as a race or not as in poverty I think that really begins the healing process I don't know mm -hmm. how the hell that's supposed to start but I think it starts with, you know, uh, honestly, it starts with ex accessibility. We need to create places, spaces that we can have true accessibility to the wisdom to of just a Tracy, each other. The way to be able to yeah. teach each other without being vilified for the yeah. way that we feel. And, and it, it takes everybody being part of it. And so, I mean, some of the challenges that we do face, obviously, there's, you know, uh, high homicide rates for uh, per capita. There's um, joblessness, unemployment is through the roof. Um, There's education disparity. Education disparity. It's but a lot of that stems from not having a truly integrated city. Mm -hmm. And we do exist in these silos. So here you have a school that's great and it exists in the silo. Here you have a school that's horrible, exists in the silo. So there's not a true integration. And how you create that integration is accessibility. You know, thinking about New York and how people, why people love some of the culture so much is because there is more of an integration. Yeah, and I get it, people are gonna say, well, no, not really. But in a way, in a way the subway system, the transportation systems, mm -hmm. all of those systems play a role in being able to bring together the boroughs of New York. And, and that's just by happen chance, by transportation. Yeah. I mean, cause I've, been, I've been to New York, my kids live in Brooklyn, and it's amazing getting on the subway from Brooklyn going into Manhattan and how the population changes by the time you get to Times Square. You know, you're in Bed-Stuy and you get on the subway and you get to Times Square. It's like, oh, these people look really different. The train even changes. The type of train sometimes you have to transfer. So mm -hmm. the integration is there. Just It's forced integration and people have to deal with each other. We don't have that here. It's so easy for us to stay in our little world. Um, it's so easy for me to work with a client who lives on 9th and North and has never been to the lakefront. And, and why is that? You know, what is that all about? What's the rationale behind that? So it's not even, and that's close. You don't need a, a bus to get to the lakefront if you're on 9th and North, right? So what is the fear about that we don't want to connect with other people and we have ideas of how those other people are going to receive us based on maybe fact or stories from other people so we just kind of stay in our own well, I think the fear comes back to what you were saying before as far as like there is a tension in that mm -hmm. it disrupts our daily life yeah. we want to be comfortable right. and whoever we are and some of it is that we might have to stop being uh, as communities of color we might have to stop being self-segregated we might have to also start going out we have, might have to start going out and journeying out for us as clinicians of color we also would like to see 
and and say okay you know what if clients you know affluent clients see us as clinicians of color some some similar to like what ken was saying with other professionals saying you know while we are comfortable seeing um you know as people of color we're, we're comfortable seeing providers of that are white why are why you know we want that the other way too why would white um clients you know we would want them to be comfortable coming to see us we're talking about how why it's difficult to change right and so think of it this way all your life you're 37 years old and you've been told by your parents and uh news and magazines at the checkout stand that this is how things are so basically mm -hmm. you're right-handed then all of a sudden you're forced to be left-handed with every single thing you do knowing that the second you encounter someone that's different than you, you have to look at them differently. You have to think about them differently. You have to really approach them or not approach them differently. That's a huge shift for people. And it's scary because it has this cascading effect on everything you do. And, you know, thankfully, I've, I know I have some pre, I've had some preconceived notions about who people are. And when I've been challenged by that, it's been disruptive. But every single time, from a selfish standpoint, I'm better for it. And maybe yeah. they are too. Yeah. People resist change, whether it's working out or changing how they look at people that aren't like them. Yeah. And I think we've, had, we've been blessed with a chance to see that across our country yeah. for the past eight years and beyond. Whenever some assumption is you know, challenged, people resist. And ultimately, what I see at least is those that are resisting are basically... Kind of, so kind of analogy is you know they're still wearing bell bottoms <laughs> you know just like it really is not in anymore and you got to catch up to who we are and by we i don't just mean mm -hmm. people of color we as americans catch up to who we are because we're going to leave you behind change is a constant it's the mm -hmm. probably the only constant that exists i mean that is true and that is not only just for the world but that's for them personally that's for them uh, individually they're gonna change and they're gonna be frustrated by things that are happening because it doesn't fall in line with the change that they imagined I, I would tell them to embrace that embrace that tension we are not recipients of change you know we are active agents within change so I'm glad you mentioned that so it, it is constant so if someone sees change that has happened or change that's about to happen this is their chance to get behind the wheel a little bit and have some say in it so let's say someone's going through a divorce or a job loss that's going to happen that change is happening how do you cope with that how do you deal with that what role do you want to play in that next steps and it gives them some sense of power control that they feel they don't have and then i like the way you phrase that because it because it is a concept but again we are not recipients of that we have some say in what happens next and even thinking about it's it's you know, it's a lot easier to do work when it is preventative rather than, you know, in interventions. Um, a lot of times if you can foresee something that's going to happen to you and get it early on, we applaud parents who bring in, um, you know, when they start to see that something is going on with their kids. We applaud you know, couples that come in and say, okay, we're starting to face some difficulties or families that are starting to, like, see it before it happens. Those, those visionaries... You know, oftentimes they are rewarded because they, they do build healthier coping mechanisms um, later on.
and then like you said like you you start to use utilize that for the rest of your life you know no mental health um clinician should ever want to hook and that's that's the whole thing out there is that like once you see a mental health expert um you will often be hooked for life and become reliant on them that is not our philosophy here our philosophy here is like we need we want to basically instill a sense of uh empowerment into you so that you can navigate a lot of these life issues going forward you know we appreciate clients that come for years and some sometimes there's clients that need that but but essentially i think good clinicians will look for ways to like empower the person so that they can be ultimately their own solutions we're about creating holistic healthy growth and that means working with mind body spirit and, and you know we all have our different specialties there's you know obviously we have performance psychologists we have those that work with, have worked in uh, the juvenile detention system the adult incarceration system those that work with uh, survivors of abuse and assault but with that said it all encompasses this holistic growth um, how do we deal with creating mind health you know uh, healthy mind body spirit uh, relationships yeah so mine is more traditional and but I but I've often referred to my colleagues here as well um, my work specifically is uh, early adult late adolescent couples work and adult as well and uh, depression anxiety and more of a cognitive behavioral approach and really much like you were saying party and I've said this to clients I work with, and sometimes it's not received very well, but I've shared with them that my goal is not to see them very long. And that mm-hmm. very long could be three years, that very long could be 12 sessions, could be six sessions. Because if they're continuing to see me, that's fantastic. But if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, that's not good. Um, they want to come in, get their work done, and be done, and move on and use the skills that they've created here. So I try to work on very limited you know, sessions, very focused sessions. Mm-hmm. And people seem to be receptive to that. The buzzword right now is trauma informed, trauma informed. I would say that our clinic is, you know, uh, trauma addressed. We're looking at, we're always solution focused. We're, you know, obviously the, the 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 challenges are out here, but we're always solution focused. Like, well, how do we get there? The quickest we can get there with the client that we have. 